We have come to a big moment this morning in our uh, study of Luke. And just before I read the passage to catch us up uh, where we have been so far, we picked up with John the Baptist. We looked how John was the herald announcing um, the Messiah who is, who is um, coming and that is Jesus. That the time is here, uh, this new age is dawning uh, when the word of the Lord comes back uh, so that he can rescue his people. And then we've seen Jesus introduced publicly and um, confirmed as the Son of God in whom God is well pleased when Jesus is baptized. Um, And then we've seen how Jesus proved to be uh, the faithful Son of God where Israel as a people could not when he was sent away into the wilderness uh, to be tempted for 40 days. And so where we are here, uh, we're picking up as Jesus is back from his temptation in the desert. um, And he is... As we'll see, he is in the synagogue, uh, which is a customary thing for him. And this is where he actually begins his ministry. He begins doing what he has come to do. It's a really beautiful passage. Um, I'll read it, uh, and then we will uh, unpack it a little bit. This is God's Word, Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. And he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is a really famous passage. Um, it's okay if you have never heard of it, but if you have uh, studied the Bible for any length of time, then you, you probably have heard of this passage. Um, they're really wonderful words. Um, just reading this quotation of Isaiah 61, how Jesus claims to be uh, this one who is going to do this great work. Um, this, these are really encouraging and hopeful words uh, that he's given. Uh, this has been... It's, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but this, interestingly, this passage have, has been subject to different interpretations. It's been used to justify how 
The kingdom of God is primarily an earthly thing that is formed on earth and earth's institutions um, and socially and people groups. And it's also been used to justify the fact that the kingdom of God is a spiritual thing, that this is about spiritual bondage uh, primarily. And we're going to look at, I'm not going to get into that totally, but we're going to touch on some of those things uh, when we get to them. But I want to focus on this idea that this is where Jesus says he comes to proclaim good news to the poor. And this is where we get the word gospel. The word gospel just means good news. And so if you're around here much, you'll hear we use this word gospel an awful lot. And that's what this is all about. It is this good news that Jesus came uh, to preach uh, to his people and to the world. And but one of the interesting things that this brings out, which is kind of going to be uh, uh, one of the main things we look at here, is that it illustrates this principle that good news is only good depending on the vantage point uh, from which you're looking at it. Um, and that it's, it can be good or bad depending on your, um, your situation or your vantage point. And just to illustrate, um, I'll give you a hypothetical situation. Let's say there's a family and they have uh, four kids, maybe three boys and one girl. And there is a, a task given to them that they all have to work together to clean the den. And if they don't clean the den, then they don't get to watch a movie um, at the end of the evening. Some do, some don't. The ones that do are really excited about watching the movie. The ones that don't are really upset because they don't get to watch the movie. And let's just say that grandparents show up unannounced that evening and say, surprise, we're here. We are going to take all four of you out to the theater and we're going to go watch a movie together. And think about how that sounds to each of the groups of kids. To the ones who actually worked hard in the promise of this reward, what do they say? That's not fair. I spent all of this time working for this, for this reward, and then I get it. But it is also given to the ones who didn't do the job, and they didn't deserve it in my eyes. That's not fair. Uh, that's one of the most common phrases that is said in my house. Um, but... If we think about it, this is not just a kid's thing. Like, think about if you are, you know, you really work hard and you every month you put money away into retirement in order to save. You know, you don't live it up as much as you could in the moment. You put it away to be responsible. And then one of your friends just, you know, unloads money like crazy and you have to watch them, you know, have all this fun uh, while you're saving. And then someone comes along like their parents and said, you know what, I'm going to give you this big sum of money. So when you get to retirement, then you have everything you need and you're going to be just as secure. Like, that's not going to be good news to you. Like, you might say, I'm so happy for you that that happened. But there's also this sense of injustice. Like, why would they get this, get this mercy in this moment? Like, this, there's something about this that seems unfair, uh, given the situation. And this is very, this hits very closely to what's going on here in this passage. Is that Jesus is coming, he is bringing good news, but there are two groups of people here. And this news is going to look different uh, depending on which group, um, in, in which group you're sitting. And so what I want to do here is I'm just going to look at both of these two, just two, two points. Um, we're going to look at those who are captive to their own poverty at first. Uh, this is going to be the poor and then we're going to look at those who are captive uh, primarily to themselves at the end. And this is the group to which Jesus' message is going to be bad news. 
So let's start here in the beginning. Uh, We're going to look at those captive to poverty and those whom this would be really good news um, if uh, to hear these words from Jesus. Uh, So just to give us, catch us up, give us a little bit of context, Jesus is doing this. This might have been a normal thing for people like him to be able to stand up and preach like this. Uh, But he says something that that is much more radical than normal. Um, He takes this passage from Isaiah 1, uh, 61, and there's also a verse he tacks on here from Isaiah 58. And he is claiming to be this person whom this uh, passage in Isaiah is talking about, this future hope, um, the the one who would come to make everything right um, in Israel one day. He's saying that this is me. And today, um, that this is actually fulfilled in your presence, that this day has come. And so what does he mean by, by this? You know, he's, he, what the content of this is, he says he's here to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. What do these things mean? Like who are these people who are poor? Who are these people who are uh, oppressed? And this is where there's been some difference of interpretation, that this it can be taken in a literal sense, like pe- with literal material poverty, or in a spiritual sense, that, there is a, that this has some kind of to do with a spiritual poverty. And so rather than kind of take our own lenses to this text, we have to look at you know, what this would have meant in Jesus' day and then in the, in the uh, context of the whole Bible. And so if you were in there in Jesus' day and you were poor, um, this certainly would, likely would have meant material poverty um, to some extent. And we can't brush over that fact, um, that that's one of the realities of life. Um, and that this certainly would have been included. But it is much more than that, uh, because poverty in that day was, it was much more than just possessions, but it also had to do with your relationships, with your standing in a society. Uh, there were some who were more marginalized than others. There were some who had an easier path than others. If you were a widow, you didn't have the same support structure that you needed, and you would be considered poor. Um, um, and you could be marginalized in any way, and you wouldn't be able to participate in life um, in the economy the same as other people. And so what we're looking at here is that it, is, it includes material poverty, but it is also something more than that as well. It affects a broader range of relationships. And to take that a step further, if we look at this in the context of the Old Testament, um, where this uh, passage would have been coming from in Isaiah, then poverty would have been all these things, material, relational. But when we start talking about um, this release from captivity, uh, particularly the words used, this is the same idea as forgiveness. And so all these things were, were bound very tightly together. There was a spiritual dimension of forgiveness, release from sins, and then there were also these real-life um, implications of where um, life can be broken, and it can be very hard. This is an all-encompassing um, swath uh, that Jesus was making. And their hope in Israel was that one day um, that this figure was going to come, this Messiah, and he was going to make everything right. And that he was going to restore um, Israel. If we read this whole passage earlier. You see all that language about restoration and building up cities again. And ironically, the other nations coming in and being included uh, in this as well. That part got forgotten, I guess. Um, but there's this whole-scale restoration that was hoped, but with God at the center. It always starts with a restored relationship with God. 
a peace between God and his people. And from there, not one corner of life that would be untouched is everything. People, moral, economic, everything. Relational, working the way that God designed and the way that it should. This is what we're talking about, what Jesus is getting at. He's making in the beginning a very broad um, stroke here of saying what he's coming to do, that he is the source of this hope. He is the source of hope for people who are very, very broken in a very broad um, number of ways. And I think if we think about this, this is what it was like for me to think about this this week. And this is, this is one of the circumstances we can get into. We come into this room, uh, particularly if you are um, a Christian, and we know that we are here by grace and that we've been saved by grace. And yet, there are these other things in life that kind of creep in that we don't really know how to deal with. Uh, things where life is, are just not right, uh, that we can't sort out. Uh, we can't fit them very well into um, who God says he is and who, um, what he has said that he is um, going to do for us. You have things like mental illness. And you're like, what do we do with that? Like, how do we, do we keep this kind of hidden? Because we don't know how, to, how this fits in this whole thing. And we don't know how, to, how anything's going to be made right again. We have sin. We have these habits that maybe we think we get rid of them for a little while. And then they come back, and they take us by surprise, um, and we just try to get back on the horse and keep going like um, there's nothing wrong. Um, there are relational breakdown that we don't know how to fix. We have wounds from other people that we don't know how to deal with. Um, life can get really, really chaotic. It can get very, very hard. It can be broken in any number of ways. Even material poverty, like this can be one of those things. And if you are in this position of realizing that um, despite whatever I project, I have stuff in my life I just don't know how to deal with. I don't know how to make this right. I don't know how to function like I think a normal human being should be able to function. Jesus is coming here and he is reminding us that this good news is for broken people. It is not for people who have it all together. That what we think is a distraction from our life of faith, a distracting hardship, he is coming and reminding us again, this is what this is all about. I already know that life is messed up before you know it. And I have come to be um, the Savior in this situation. How does that work? I mean, what he has done, first of all, is he is in the process of of restoring a peaceful, flourishing relationship with God himself, which is the source of all good. And that he is the only one who can release us from the bondage of sin and the bondage of separation from God. And what that has to do practically now is it means that he himself, through his spirit, can be with us in exactly the situation we're in, just as broken as it is, even when we don't know how to sort it out. And that as he is with us, that all of those things now serve him instead of serving death. He is the one who can bring resurrection life where there is only death. He is the one that can lead all of those things exactly through the story that he wants to weave in your life, which is ultimately going to glorify him and do you good.
And then finally, in the future, it means that there is no brokenness that can happen that can have a final say on you. But he gets the final say. And these are the things that he is, we are going to see as we go through the gospel in this story that he is going to um, show us uh, as we go. And I just, last thing about this, I think it is interesting that if you look at this in the original language, it emphasizes three times when he's saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You can kind of see it here. Um, because he has anointed me. Um, he says me three times. Like he very emphatically is saying that the one who is going to do this is not you, it's me. And he, the word release, he emphasizes two times. So it's like he's trying to get right up in your face and saying, me, release. Me, release. Like I think of a gorilla, like getting right from banging his, banging his chest to remember this. That it is me who is here to release you, to preach good news to the poor. And that's where this is really good news. The good news of the gospel comes not when we have it together, but when we know that we are poor in any number of ways and we need help. Now, how can that not be good news to everybody? Like, that sounds really, really good, uh, doesn't it? But interesting thing comes about. And we, we, we read the story further, and Jesus says this, and at first, um, everybody's really excited. Uh, they say, isn't this the son of Joseph? Like, and he's saying some really great stuff. Uh, what's the assumption there? The assumption there is that, ah, he is one of us. He is here to release us, to give us what we want, um, and not so much to do the same uh, for others. And what Jesus does is he is calling them out on this. He's saying that you're happy about this now. You, you perceive, Jesus knows their minds. And he's saying, you perceive that I'm here because I'm on your team at somebody else's expense. But that's not why I'm here. Because you're going to hear about things I do in Capernaum. And you're going to hear about things I do even to the Gentiles. And you're going to accuse me of spending your time on people who should not be the primary recipients of your grace. And that's going to make you very, very angry. And he uses Elijah and Elisha as examples of this, of how the prophets were sent not to the people of Israel, but to the nations around uh, when they were rejected by their own people. And so they try to kill him. Like it just took that. Talk about anger management. I mean, like just that, they were really, really angry and they tried to kill him. And somehow Jesus got out of there. Maybe it was miraculous. I don't know. It doesn't say. But this is showing us there's another side to this, that good news doesn't always sound good. And when does it not sound good? Uh, we have these people who are, we see them, they're captive, um, not just to their poverty, but there's something about themselves that they remain captive to, that they have a hard time uh, dealing with. And I think an interesting thing about this, there's two things they're captive to, their own sense of entitlement. So they have an elitism about who they are and their own sense of injustice. That they, remember, they are the ones who are actually oppressed. That this was their nation and Rome has taken them over. Greece took them over. And so we at the same time have this sense of we're better than everybody else and we're the victims here. Like, if you talk, start talking about release of captives, that has to mean us, right? And that can't mean uh, our oppressors. Uh, there's no way that can mean that. And so we get to look at these through these two angles. 
Um, so in the first sense, we see here that the Jews and their assumption, they, they knew that they needed redemption. They knew that they needed a savior, but it was primarily about them. That there were some things about them that differentiated them from other people, being their birth, being their sense of morality, um, those kinds of things. Which, you know, it, they wouldn't have thought that this meant that they earned God's favor, but it did mean that when he came, he would be on their side. And that they would be the primary recipients of his grace. Um, and that's not exactly what happened. Uh, just to illustrate this, and I'm going to il- try to illustrate this on both sides uh, the best that I can. Let's say that we're sitting in here and we are, put this in political terms, and we are really discouraged at how um, particularly the Christian values in our nation uh, have been eroded away. And we watch the news and are really discouraged about this and uh, really long to see um, things be different. Not a bad thing. But then Jesus shows up and he says, great. I'm here. I'm the Savior. Let's go over there and show some people with the liberal agenda some mercy and show them a release from captivity and spend time with them. That might not seem exactly right. Like, that's not the way that I thought it was going to be. I thought you were going to come and affirm this and everybody else was just going to get the punishment side. And Jesus is saying that that is not exactly what I'm about here. That nobody comes to me except by grace. And if nobody comes to me except by grace, that means my grace is here for everybody. That it is not just here for you. That's the one side. So there's a sense of entitlement and an elitism that we can bring to assume that God is here to back us up. And that he will extend us mercy before he extends mercy to others. Let's look at it from the other sense. The Jews also had this very strong sense of injustice, that they were the ones who were oppressed, um, and they could not fathom that God would give mercy to anybody else except them, because they had to be the objects of his favor. But like that, let's say, let's flip the tables on the other sense. Let's say that, um, and I, you know, I think our congregation is fairly... um, you know, I have a very healthy sense of justice and, um, and want to see um, flourishing across uh, racial lines, economic lines, all those kinds of things. Um, but let's say that you really got into the uh, social justice movement right now and that you have, you know, feel very strongly about the wrongs that are done and have given a lot of time and energy um, uh, to put into this. And Jesus shows up and he says, great, I'm here, your redeemer. Let's go over to the wealthy white suburbs and show mercy and extend grace to those who are in captivity. Jesus is flipping the tables on the people. And this is the nature of grace. And this is one of the things that is fundamentally core about what it means to be a Christian. And one thing I'll say before I get into this, there are going to be lots of implications to this. Luke is really going to unpack how important it is to do justice. He is going to really unpack how important it is, um, even his law. All these kinds of things we're going to get out and how we apply this in life. We don't have time to do all that in one sermon. But it is interesting that he is really pushing on this issue from the very beginning that this is all about God's grace for people who are broken and who are completely desperate 
who don't have a sense of entitlement to anything at all unless it is given as a free gift. When we're broken, that's going to sound like good news. When we think that we're entitled to something, that is going to sound like it is really bad news. And when that grace is hard to extend to other people, that's where we see that there is something missing in our own conception of why Jesus is here and what he is all about. He is not just here all about us. He is here about us. He is not just here uh, to fulfill the things we feel strongly about. He likely is going to do that. But he is fundamentally here to show grace to those who are in need, who are desperate and who need him. He is not just about us. He is about the final restoration of all things, of all people in all places. And so I think what we have here is an invitation as we are grappling uh, with these things. Uh, We have an invitation here to both um, to fall at Jesus' feet in mercy and hope and good hope. And we are also invited to be offended about what this grace really means. And it's not always pleasant. It means that grace doesn't always go to the people who we want um, it to be grace to go to. But the good news even in that is that as this thing is offensive, as Jesus brings this out, he brings this over-captivation with ourselves and what we want, is that in the pulling away from ourselves and realizing how attached we are to ourselves, we are being offered something better. We are being offered the Son of God. We're being offered the Son of God who has good news to be preached to you. We are offered the Son of God who is here to extend grace, to bring final restoration to Him, and to ultimately see the restoration of all things in all places. That's kind of counterintuitive in what we think. I think about it this way. In this movement to take on this posture of, desper- of desperation, Adam Venable used the Indiana Jones and Last Crusade as an illustration last time, and so I'm going to do the same uh, this time. Um, you know the scene in the beginning where, Je- where not Jesus, Indiana Jones goes down into the, into the tomb to find the night, and then water starts coming up. Uh, it starts coming up, so they're about to drown. And the girl he's with wants to go back up the tunnel to flee for safety because that's the thing that seems the safest. That's what it would be like to depend on our own sense of, of worth and value apart from Christ, which ultimately will divide us from God and other people. But what Indiana Jones does counterintuitively, he doesn't go away. He goes down and he leads them and swims down into the water. And it is through that they end up coming up a tunnel and coming up right in the square in Venice and it's kind of comical, uh, pops up right in the middle of people eating lunch. And this is the way to safety. The true way to safety is through our desperation in need of Jesus. The false way of safety is to hold on to something in ourselves um, to try to defend our own cause. And so what do we do? We are invited here to give ourselves to Jesus in desperation and hope. And he is enough. He is preaching good news to you. Uh, He is offering presence with you. uh, And he is offering a sure hope that will lead beyond anything that we can face. So let's take a moment and pray that the Spirit would work into our hearts and would really challenge us uh, with these words. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace. 
We pray that you would uh, pierce our hearts, that you would humble us before you, you would show us our need of your grace, and that that would fundamentally transform how we approach you and how we approach other people. Uh, We know that you'll do it because you love us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.